0: Welcome to the Project Cycling Podcast. In this episode, we had a great chat with Gracie Elvin about the Olympics, her transition out of the world tour, and her involvement in the Cyclist Alliance to help improve women's professional sport. I really enjoyed this episode, and I I hope you enjoy it as well.
1: been watching much of the olympics
2: yeah i love watching the olympics um definitely watch the road racing um but i've been watching other sports too i think it's yeah it's just like a different sporting event for all of the sports it's something different about watching any sport at the olympics and it's yeah i think it's pretty cool
1: yeah i i, I wonder and i had this conversation the other day i said i wonder where we're going to stop with including new sports in the olympics because, um, yeah,
2: it's interesting.
1: Oh, now you've got skateboarding, and what uh, well, they put a couple of like you know, that three on three basketball, and a, a couple mm. of ones that you know, you, you sort of oh, that's weird, but then you think about it, and you go, oh, well, they're as much a sport as anything else, and they all get included at some point. But, um, yeah, I, I was saying, I wouldn't be surprised if you see something down the lines like, um, you know, we've got UFC so huge now. I wonder if you'll see like mixed martial arts coming in because you've got boxing, you've got judo, you've got well. Is there a natural progression that you see something like mix, you know, mixed martial arts coming in?
2: Yeah, definitely. I think um, there's probably no limit to what sports they'll end up including, but the only limiting factor is the quotas. And I'm pretty sure for the Paris games, they're actually reducing the amount of athletes that are going to be able to compete, like, overall. So I don't really know how that affects new sports or current sports.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure. I heard him say, and I can't remember what the figures are, but it was like, Seven thousand athletes at one point now are up to like X amount. You know, it's the, the growth in, in just the total number of athletes has been huge.
2: Yeah, maybe that will just make it a, a three week event instead, and just have, you know, rules about who can be there at one time.
1: Yeah, don't know. I'm
3: not so, sure. So coming off the Olympics, do you miss? Does that make you miss racing when you're watching on the tally?
2: Yeah, definitely. I I in some ways. You know, like I'm definitely at peace with the decision that I made last year to retire. Um, I was trying to make the Tokyo team before all the COVID stuff started happening. Um, So it was strange to watch the opening ceremony because, you know, I've watched a lot of uh, cycling this year now, and the first few races I watched at the start of the year was actually quite painful to watch because I guess I I left with some unfinished business and you just get a bit frustrated when you're like, oh, I should have, could have, would have, But, like, that was still relatively easy enough for me to work through those feelings. And then as the year went on, I can watch cycling just as a fan and enjoy it. Um, But sometimes when new things come along or, like, you know, favourite races like the Tour of Flanders comes along and you're like, oh, actually it stings a bit more again and then the Olympics comes along. And um, I think if it was an Olympics I wasn't aiming for, like, if, if I'd retired a while ago I think you watch it with a bit of pride and maybe you miss it a bit but I think when it was an Olympics that you were targeting and then you decided to change your life plans along the way it, it probably stings a little bit more and when they had the opening ceremony and they showed some of those images of athletes you know training in the dark I guess it was symbolic of tri- athletes having to you know reframe how they were going to do another year and, and training in garages and it, it, all the emotions kind of hit me from last year of like oh wow I did that that was actually really hard and you probably just didn't give it credit for how hard it was at the time because you just were in it and you were doing it but in hindsight when you when you see those kind of images Yeah, for me, I was a bit, like, emotional. I actually started tearing up in some of those opening ceremony scenes, but watching the road racing actually wasn't as emotional as just watching some of those those images, which was interesting because I think I have put enough distance for myself now between racing and I was really, you know, just excited to watch it as a fan, plus in some ways I was glad to not be there (laughs) because it was a brutal race and the way it played out was really unexpected i guess for both races but particularly for the women's race
3: i love that when they have unexpected winners i think that's what it's all about and i do like olympics does lead to that with the different teams and what people are used to smaller teams i find it special i like watching a race going i got no clue who's gonna win this because anyone really can
2: yeah it is really cool like all different sports have, you know, a similar kind of feeling of, oh, we don't really know what's going to happen, but in cycling and in road cycling specifically, the, the teams are so different to a normal race. You're not having every team with six riders there. You're having some teams with four, some teams with three, some teams with two, some teams with one, and it's in the women's race it's only 67 starters, which is half the field really of a normal race. So it's much harder to control Um, you know, some great riders are there alone. They don't have support of their team. And, you know, other teams like the Dutch team have a stacked team of four winners. So it's really different to most other races. Um, And, yeah, it's unpredictable and that's kind of exciting. In some ways, I wish it was a bit more reflective of what a race really is in all other settings because, you know, that's what we're good at. That's what we train to do. So when you're thrown into a different scenario like that, it's not completely reflective of um, what we are good at and what women's cycling or, or men's cycling really is. So that, like you said, it's unpredictable and that kind of makes it exciting. And you have these unexpected results that, you know, they're still really deserving of the medal. They they're, they, they qualified, they trained, they got through that hard four-hour race or six-hour race um, so they deserve that medal too, and, and they were able to um, capitalise on that situation.
1: I saw a um, – I can't remember who it was, sorry, but I saw somebody quoted in the media that watching it reminded them of watching a junior race, that, you know, you get to the end and it's very much every man for him, himself in a way because, you know, like you touched on, different teams have different amounts of you know, different quotas of riders there, and we don't have that team structure as heavily, and you see some countries – like in the women's, you had uh, I believe Ethiopia and had the one one uh, female rider there, and it takes away that what we used to see in the pro in the pro you know, world tour, where you've got massive teams with you know, like you said, stra- stacked teams with heaps of talent, and they can really control races or whatever. And it almost goes back to watching a little bit more pure racing in, in a way.
2: Yes and no, I'd say. Yes, to the the pure athleticism of the riders in the race and and those that are able to survive um, those kind of conditions and climbs and, you know, bring out their best performances. But I say no because road cycling is a team sport and even though that's quite hard to explain to non-cycling fans, you know, 99% of the time we race, it's in a team setting and we you know, it's one of those rare team sports where we all go to a common goal and we get one person across the line and they're the only one that gets to stand on the podium and it's a shame because it, it usually takes a whole team for that person to get that result and, you know, it's, it's, it's a shame that the whole team doesn't get to stand on the podium but in an Olympic setting it's, it's really reduced down to not particularly a team sport anymore and so, I guess in some ways, uh, individual medals are almost, you know, normalized. Um, in in a lot of cases, it still takes a team to get that person to an Olympic medal. But certainly, it's it is more reductive to to individual performances, I guess. Well,
3: you can't really be team at one, can you? So it is no yeah, like when some people are there by themselves. Yeah, it is true what you say. I've never really got that with cycling. Even when I race, I was like, why do like only one per like it'd be so easy just to bring the whole team on the podium? It's like, you know, we won this race, why can't we all just get up there and like it wouldn't take much to actually just change that mentality. You just call the team up instead of the person up. But yeah, really we'd like
2: to see that in the future. Oh,
3: I reckon that'd be cool if they actually called the team up. Like I'm like, that actually I reckon it make it a better feel and a better environment. And even from um like a team point of view, it'd make it probably easier to commercialize the team and sell merchandise because people like from a pros you don't really back a team. Most people don't go, "Oh, I love this team." They go, "I oh, like, I support this rider and this rider and this rider." I think it would probably make it easier to for a team to actually get a a fan base themselves.
2: Yeah, for sure. And you see it in other sports. Like, imagine if you took the the two best point scorers of a basketball team and just put them in with another one or two instead of taking the whole team that usually, you know, works together. And then if they won the overall tournament, then only that one person who got the best shot, the, the most shots of the day or the winning shot got to get the medal. Like it's when you think about it like that, it's really strange because it takes a whole team to to win a basketball game or a soccer game or a hockey game. So same in cycling, it, it takes a whole team of people to get to that result more often than not.
3: And not just the riders, the support staff and that too. And even though they wouldn't, like, I think it'd give them more credit too if the team gets to go on and it's you know, listed as this team won the race rather than this rider because they're like, well, I'm part of that team. I, I know I am.
1: Yeah, I suppose yeah. It's a bit of a, it is a bit of a unique sport when you sit down and think of it like that, that compared to other sports where from a supporter's perspective, you do tend to have a fan base for that team, like you said. And then, you, you know, you're right, you touched on, we do tend to, you know, follow riders as opposed to follow the team they're attached to. And, and riders move between teams, and rightly so. But, yeah, you don't tend to have a, a solid allegiance and glorify the team as much as we do the individual, even though, like you said, it's absolutely 120% a, a team sport that gets those individuals those results. I would have just loved
0: that yeah. that money shot at the end of the, the women's race and the podium with that stacked Dutch team in second and <laughs> just one Austrian right yeah. on the top. <laughs> that would be pretty good. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah.
3: One thing, though, um, it is cool to see that you still love the sport because a lot of people, when they step down from it, they do feel a bit burnt out and a sour taste in their mouth. And It is cool. Um, I did see on Instagram that you're posting a heap of stories watching the race and. I love that because I think I suppose I just I just love how you got that that love with the sport. Like I think that's cool.
2: Yeah, thanks. I I'm really glad to have finished the sport pretty much on my own terms. There's certainly been the last few years of my career had certain personal events that affected my racing, and and it's hard to sometimes not feel a bit bitter or resentful about it. But I really try hard to choose to see the positives of my career and 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 be proud of you know how I did things rather than what I did and I can see the temptation for people to want to have a break and step away from the sport just because it is a bit painful to watch other people still in the spotlight and still you know living the dream and all that but um, I'm lucky I didn't have to leave the sport because of injury or or not getting a contract I I got to choose to leave Um, so like I said before I probably felt like I still had a bit of unfinished business but um, in contrast, that's a much better feeling than feeling like I was there too long and that I hate it now and I don't want anything to do with it. Because the whole time I was a cyclist, even since I was, you know, an up-and-comer, I knew one day I wanted to figure out a way to give back or or to support local riders or or yeah, no, just be part of it. And I wanted to be a lifetime cyclist because it's such a a fun sport and it's such a social sport and it's something i've shared with my dad and my and made really great lifetime friends in it and those elements of cycling are really important to me and i didn't want to ruin those i guess
3: well you don't yeah you don't need to race to be a cyclist like you don't even you don't even need a fast bike to be a cyclist as long as you have got two wheels and they kind of go round, it is a sport that you can enjoy so how did that um I suppose, that transition come about? Did you plan much happening after cycling or did you just make that decision and go, I'm going to see what happens next?
2: Uh, yeah, good question. Uh, bit, of, bit of yes and no. Um, I kind of knew the last few years that I only had, a, you know, two or three years left in me. I wasn't quite sure when I was going to bite the bullet, um, but the COVID period was a big catalyst for me um, coming home in mid last year or early last year and spending a few months while the racing was postponed. And I just did lots of Ks and just enjoyed riding my bike without any structured training. And um, I think just just stepping out of the bubble for longer than normal, like usually in off-season you only have a few weeks off and then you're back into training again. So you never really get a lot of time every year to think about like what else could I be doing with my time you certainly have moments of like oh I wish I could go do that but I have to train or I can't hurt myself or you know all those little things but you never have those big chunks of time to think about it so last year I finally kind of got that by chance and realized that uh, I still love cycling but I guess maybe my values had started to change and I didn't quite know what I wanted to do after cycling but I think the the stuff pulling me home was definitely starting to outweigh the um bigger commitments that you have to make as an athlete that I'd you know enjoyed for so long and didn't think that were sacrifices. They were starting to feel more like sacrifices. Um so I don't know, long-winded answer to the question, I still don't quite know what I want to do, but I I knew it was important to be busy this year without having anything, you know, big pressure wise to to achieve. So I made a bit of a promise to myself to 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 be a bit nicer to myself, to take the pressure off, have stuff to do, but not have to be the best in the world at it. So I've been finishing my degree, which I've been doing for a really long time. I'm lucky that I'm part of a university that's very athlete-friendly and they've been really helpful. So I've been doing it actually for more than 10 years. So I've got one subject left to do, and that was really the perfect thing for me to have that replaced that structure in my training with structure in something else because yeah, as an athlete, you, you get really used to, you know, having something to tick off and something to do and and that feeling of progress. So actually uni was the perfect replacement to that. Um, It just gave me that structure that I needed while I was still trying to find my feet outside of sport. And then, yeah, I've just been trying to try lots of little things that I am interested in to see if I actually like them for real. Like, writing articles or, you know, being on TV or thinking about being a coach myself. So just dabbling here and there without making any big commitments and and letting myself have, you know, a 12-month period where I can relax and I don't have to make big decisions and I don't have to be super good (laughs) Gracie at at whatever the next thing is because I've put so much pressure on myself for so long. I, I needed that break.
1: You said something there um, before, if you don't mind me probing, because I like to probe. But uh, (laughs) you said that um, you know you had that period of time, thanks to COVID, or you know, to step outside of the bubble. And during that period, you you know, you had a longer break than you. You got back to probably enjoying less structure and being back on the bike, and had an opportunity to sort of think about things, and that your values might have realigned fair to say, would it be fair to say away from being a, you know, a professional athlete and realigned to you know, a, a different life. But you said um, after that that this year you're going to be nicer to yourself. It's an interesting sort of thing to say. Do you think that when you're in the midst of being an athlete and in that bubble that you may not be the best person to yourself?
2: Yeah, it's a really interesting conversation and I don't know how well I'll be able to explain my own feelings, but I've certainly been labelled a a perfectionist over the years and I really hate that label. Maybe it's true. I'm not going to say I'm not a perfectionist, but I prefer to just, you know, label myself as someone who really cares a lot and really tries hard and tries my hardest. And maybe females actually get labelled perfectionists more than males do, so that's also frustrating. Um, but, yeah, like I tried really hard in my career ever since I was young, a young person. Um, I wanted to be the best in the world and that has to come with some sacrifices and that has to come with some self-discipline. So it's really a spectrum of perfectionism, I guess, of, you know, how much you want to flog yourself versus how much you can balance that or or switch on and off and I really did try and practice being able to to switch on and off and be an extremist in in the sense of how much hard work I was putting into training and and how much I was going to control other factors like my diet and my social life and my rest so all of those factors are really important and, and sometimes you do get out of balance with that and sometimes you do get a bit obsessive but I guess that's kind of the game of sport is pushing it that little bit further that everyone else can, but also being yourself and trying to be healthy as well and, and being able to switch on and off in those moments. But yeah, I've certainly had my struggles with my self image and my self confidence over the years and always comparing myself to other athletes. And only in the last few years of my career, I started to be better at controlling that and accepting myself. So, I'm still a work in progress, and, and this year's been a, a really great opportunity for me to keep practicing those skills.
1: I think, that, I think that's really, really hard, isn't it, for everybody who has some sort of drive, whether or not it's an athlete or whether or not it's just somebody in life generally. I think if you have a lot of, um, you know, a lot of drive, a lot of motivation, to, and a lot of dedication towards things, I think that, it's just anecdotal, but you do often see that people tend to then compare themselves to others quite routinely instead of, like you said, worrying about yourself or, or learning to just be you know yourself sort of thing. And you want to hold yourself against maybe either someone else's standards or what you see other people achieving, whether or not it's how does that mum juggle three kids in a full-time job or how does that athlete you know, that's riding around locally still go out and win, yet I know they've got a full-time job and they've got a kid and they've got, um, how do they manage to do all their training? And you tend to hold yourself, or you can have that tendency to hold yourself against other people's me, you know, measure or performance or whatever the case may be. And you, you've got totally different, you know, totally different lives, totally different circumstances, but you see something that's very superficial and it's hard not to get dragged into that game of comparing, you know, of comparisons. And that can be in, well, in my experience, I think that can be very, very detrimental to maintaining a really positive and healthy relationship with yourself, with the bike, with people around you and just generally in life.
2: Yeah, certainly. And, you know, people always talk about it, how, you know, the, the highlight reels of social media really play into all of that stuff. And um, I've played my part in that. I probably have only shared most, mostly positive stuff, over the years, and I, I'm sure a lot of people think my life was perfect for a long time, or, you know, I was a great role model or, or something like that. And sure, I, I, I was mostly authentic, but I didn't share the the harder times because I, similar to most people, it's it's hard to be vulnerable um, to to yourself, to your close people, let alone to the general public. Um, so I'm also trying to figure out how to be a little bit more vulnerable. So I can show other people that it's okay, but it's that's still tough. Um, there's there's yeah, a lot of strength
1: think- in vulnerability, and as people, we don't acknowledge that enough um, yeah. in society, and especially for men, there's always been that, you know a, a very bright you know, bravado and, and that macho male you know, masculinity where you can't show vulnerability, and there is a lot of a lot of strength for everybody. And a lot of lessons to be learned and a lot of progress to be made if you can be vulnerable and and sort of show that vulnerability and i'm not i'm not talking that i'm going to sit here on the couch crying to the, the you know to the world but you can still be vulnerable and, and and show that you you know are having the same struggles and the same um you know same problems or same issues that you know, heaps and heaps and heaps of people are having
2: yeah definitely um oh, i had something to say i forgot um yeah i think I think sometimes we're scared of being vulnerable because you feel like that's going to be used against you and as an athlete you feel like other competitors are going to see your weaknesses and be able to exploit them and even sometimes your own teammates are going to you know use that against you and I think the worse you feel like if you if you're in a low place or if you're struggling with a bit of depression or anxiety those feelings are worse you you feel even more um paranoid about the worst outcome happening and i i've definitely experienced that and it's you have these light bulb moments and it's usually because someone else has pointed it out to you that like you said being vulnerable is actually a strength and it's really important and and nearly always you'll only be met with kindness and humility and having experienced that part of it too was really eye-opening and you know you kind of you think you realize how silly you were to think that people were going <laughs> to use it against you.
3: It is hard in that sort, of like in well, any athlete world, though. You do want to kind of keep your cards close to your chest, and it does breed that kind of unhealthy environment. But it is, um, if you are a bit vulnerable, and that it does, um, like it is better for everyone around you, your family, friends, and your other teammates. If you it actually, it is good, but it is kind of counterintuitive to go down that road. Because if you do share those concerns with your teammates, oh, I'm a bit anxious about this race, they'll generally actually lift you and then they'll ask you for support when they're in a similar situation. And it, is a, it does make a positive environment, but it is kind of, I don't know, it's, it doesn't feel normal, if you're not, especially if you're not used to it.
1: You can definitely strengthen those bonds with the humans around you, you know, even outside of sport, even in your own personal relationships. And that I've, I've found that it you know, has, I think the number one benefit is you know, you share some something like that and it seems to strengthen those relationships, strengthen those bonds. And I think it's the same even with teammates.
2: Yeah, I think being vulnerable also shows that you trust them. And and from the other side, if if you feel like that person's putting trust in you, you know, you want to be kind and helpful. And asking for help too is also a strength because people like to help. People love to be asked. For advice or for help too. So, in some ways, you're, it's almost part of a, an ego thing. Some people, you know, who want to be helpful, and you, and it's and it's from a positive sense of the ego. I'm not trying to, you know, downplay that. But yeah, I think yeah, it's really not, nice. Not my if level you of ego. Can, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, most people do want to help. So.
3: Oh, well, definitely. That's one thing I was actually even told. It's like if you get a new job or you're in a new team, the best thing you can do is just at least ask everybody for help. Don't go in. Go, I know everything. If you go in and ask, oh, can you show me how you do this? What's your opinion on this? What's your thoughts on this? It'll actually get you a lot further because people are like, oh, cool, like he respects me. Like, that's cool. He wants my opinion. So yeah, yeah exactly. people do want to help.
1: Yeah, I think that word you used before, Grace, is probably um, really, really accurate. That, that trust, you know, it shows that you being vulnerable or you know leaning on somebody else shows that you trust that person. That's, that's a... And it's a really powerful, powerful, um, you know, emotion and a really powerful thing, isn't it, trust?
2: Yeah, it really is. And in some circumstances when I have kept things that are really affecting me too close to my chest and and I get to a point where it is starting to affect my performance and I finally have to be honest about what's going on, I've lost trust in that because I should have said it earlier and, and I've put, you know, everyone else... Um, in a a harder place and that was a lesson learned as well to reach out earlier than what you need than what you think you need or reach out before you get to that really rock bottom place because you're not going to be completely punished for it but certainly that loss of trust takes a while to build back again with those people that you know you should have trusted earlier (laughs) how
0: how did you find um, building that sort of trust and relationships in a team at, at world tour level? Because I found, um, you know, at least with my own personal experience, as teams got, as I got onto bigger teams, it becomes quite a bit more spread out and remote and people don't really live near each other all the time and it becomes a bit of a fly in, fly out, sort of you're doing races here and there um, and things can become quite separate um, and it, it sort of gets harder to build those those closer relationships.
2: Yeah, I was in an interesting um, position because, you know, being an Aussie female world tour rider for an Aussie pro team, you kind of put back into a position of being back into a closer-knit family because a lot of the riders who were Australian females were living overseas, racing for the Green Edge team in whatever name it was at the time (laughs) for years, and you kind of have to build that little network over there. And so that was almost a strength for the Aussie riders is that we had to band together a little bit and we had to treat each other with a bit more humility and respect because we had to live together 24-7 a lot of the time or or live in the same town and we couldn't go back to our, you know, personal support network of friends and family in Australia because, you know, the travel was so prohibitive. So that was a really unique experience um, that, you know, a lot of, the European riders and a lot of the male pro cyclists don't get in in those bigger teams that are really spread out like you said that only see each other at camps or some people never get put on the same rosters um so for us being a smaller team of usually 10 to 12 riders you know 60 to 75 percent of that were Aussie riders a lot of the time we yeah we really were close and we had to form those bonds and 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 not piss each other off too much because we had to hang out with each other for 6 to 9 months of every year. So I think that was yeah, something that I really was grateful for in my career to have that, you know, extended family over there.
1: It's a real furnace living together and uh you know, with your teammates or even with with mates or whatever you thrive one in the same house for It either forges you stronger together or just everything incinerates (laughs) (laughs) and you hate each other within a short period of time. So it's lucky that it sounds like you had had the positive side of that furnace.
2: Yeah, I'm definitely um, more of an introvert, so I need my downtime to get my energy back. And I made sure that I was living alone for some of it. So often I would have my own apartment in Italy or in Girona um in Spain um so when we weren't at races I could just you know <laughs> recoup and and want to go and hang out with everyone again I think if I lived with anyone full time in a, in a team sense I would have cracked so it's really learning about yourself as much as learning how to work with other people is important <laughs>
3: it's good that you were self-aware and able to pick up on that because that is where some people do go wrong they're kind of like oh I don't know it's not clicking it's not clicking it's like yeah because it's okay to be alone like you don't you don't need to live with somebody else or vice versa. If you're living alone and you're somebody who wants to be with somebody else, so it is good that you you were self-aware and managed to pick up on that and could do the right thing for your mental health.
2: Yeah, a lot of people, like you said, they don't learn it over there and that's a big factor in why they don't make it at the world tour level in, in male or female um so yeah i've i've been teammates with a lot of people that did work it out and it's worked really well for them and it's it's hard when you see someone not kind of working it out and they they're just making it so much harder for themselves because it's already hard over there like we have a great time don't get me wrong it's a really great yeah, really cool lifestyle and something that i you know, we'll always remember, but certainly you get homesick and you're, you're not in the environment that you're used to and you have to really make a home over there and you have to make that environment that suits you.
1: Coming up through the ranks, obviously, you know, you, through Australia and then in particular the when you took that jump internationally um, to Pro Tour, did you have somebody who maybe gave you, acted like a bit of a mentor, in particular, I suppose, with these things we're talking about, gave you that had a bit of that mentor role and said you know you need to have time for yourself or hey have you thought about trying to manage this in your personal life and trying to have separation from racing or you know was there anybody there that you were able to lean on or did, was it a little bit of sink or swim and learn not by mistakes but learn, learn by finding your own way um i
2: didn't necessarily have um, mentors that were suitable for the experiences I was going through in an official sense like I didn't have any older female Aussie riders that were really you know helping me through those first few years I, I had some you know teammates that were my peers my same age group that had had a lot more experience than me but because they were so focused on their own careers you know it was different to you know having an older mentor and I kind of went through that generation of coming in just before the London Olympics, and a lot of the girl, the the women before me um, in the years of racing before that had kind of already retired. So it was really the new wave already coming through, and I was part of that. Um, so actually, a lot of my mentors were European riders, and, and they were more mentors in the sense of just strictly racing because they didn't have that experience of long chunks of time away from home, but. I was lucky in the sense that I I came through a lot of systems with great support. I came through the national um, road team system with the infamous selection camp. I don't know if you ever heard of that, but that's a whole other story. (laughs) No, but but we'd um, like to if you want to go there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, maybe I'll get to it. Um, So the national coach at the time was a bit controversial, but he was actually really great support to me. Um, And I had a a few Euro teammates were really helpful um, and my Aussie peers that were helpful. Plus, um, you know, I I was mindful to have my support network outside of any team that I was into because cycling's quite a fickle (laughs) economy or, or environment. So you have to be careful, like you will change teams probably or you might get dropped from national teams or funding. So you have to make sure that you have your own kind of structure in place to go along with whatever changes are happening. And I I had a really great personal support network and my family was kind of the core of that. And uh, my partner at the time, Stuart Shaw, was a huge, you know, support and help and and he was, I guess, a big mentor as well because he'd gone through his own career and, and raced a lot overseas. So, yeah, I think... I had a lot of growing up to do in that time and I'm really lucky that I had good people around me to give me good advice here and there so not one person in particular to do everything but certainly lots of people to do bits and pieces and help me through the whole thing
3: and one thing I really wanted to ask you about is you are a founder of the cycling alliance did you want to give us a rundown what that's about?
2: Yeah, um, back in 2017 I was approached by a friend of mine, a Dutch rider called Iris Slappendel, and she was also talking with another rider at the time, uh, an American, Carmen Small, and we all were quite interested in the politics of the sport and we'd often be chatting in the neutrals of races about what we thought of some current topic or this race or that race or how things could be better and women's cycling was going through a big transition of you know being a very unsupported sport to you know slowly getting a bit more coverage slowly you know getting a bit more interest but also having some big problems and she she asked me mid 2017 if I'd be interested to help set up a rider union I was a bit reluctant because you know as an athlete all your focus want, you want to put it on your sport and I didn't want anything taking away from that but she managed to convince me, and yeah, I've never really looked back. Um, certainly, been moments where I've wanted to stop, but I've never been able to because I do care a lot. Um, and yeah, for the last five years, we've built up um, a union for female riders, and it's independent from anything. So it's it's not like the the men's union, the CPA that runs hand in glove, I guess, with the UCI. We We really believe that being an independent union was crucial to remain unbiased and um, really rider-driven. So we've been able to provide riders with a really um, quality level and amount of legal help um, in terms of contract support and advice um, all the way up to, you know, abuse allegations within teams that go go to court. So we've also provided riders with a lot of other benefits we wanted to make sure that every rider in the peloton, regardless of what team level support they had, had access to nutritionists and psychologists and a legal team. And um, yeah, we've got a handful of other great um, partners that have been big supports along the way. Um, so yeah, we've only gotten bigger every year, which is really cool, and we've only garnered more support from um, cycling industry professionals from, you know all corners, media brands uh, and all the top writers too, which is really cool because they can see the value of of what we do.
3: I think that's really cool how it's not part of the UCI too, because I never really get that when they're like, all right, we'll set up a, you know, if you've got a problem with us, we'll set up a committee and you can let us know, but we're we're in charge of the committee. So like I do like that how it's yeah, it is just totally independent and you can bring those issues without it being smothered and shut down before it gets anywhere.
2: So, yeah, I certainly don't want to talk poorly of the CPA or the UCI, but you have to question the ethics of some of the the things they do in terms of groups like that. Um, I, yeah, it it sometimes it just seems like an old boys club, and the interests of the riders aren't the priority. And we uh, back before Iris um, approached me and Carmen about creating our own union was she'd actually been. Uh, part of some of this the CPA meetings and realize that if we ever decided to form a women's arm of that, we'd always be bottom of the the ticket. So um, we don't want to be part of the the problems of men's cycling because you know there's there's some big problems there that actually women cycling don't have, so, in, we do want to have some similarities with men's cycling and, and some equality there, but we also are a different sport in a lot of ways, and there are a lot of positives about women's cycling and, and things that we want to, you know, promote and highlight instead of being, um, you know, shackled to the <laughs> some of the issues in men's cycling.
1: And you, I, you don't want your issues or the issues that are affecting women's cycling overlooked, too, because. You know, uh, uh, let's say a bigger issue, for want of a better term, is being addressed by, by, um, by you know, in men's cycling, and therefore yours gets pushed to the you know to the side because it's not deemed maybe as critical or as, as important to resolve as yeah you know, this bigger issue. But for the women within that, in that sport, it is a big issue, and it shouldn't be like you said second fiddle to, um, to the men's, to the men's racing or to the men's peloton. Yeah,
2: exactly. We didn't want to. Um, you know have any issues surrounding like political moves we we wanted to put all efforts and all resources into what the riders need and not be a pawn in that in a a bigger game (laughs) ultimately
1: did you get much resistance um i suppose on multiple fronts did you get much resistance from the women within the pro tour um as in getting on board with the concept of um, the cycling alliance or, uh, and second to that, did you get much resistance from, let's say, you know, for example, the UCI or from um, from other areas of cycling that you might not have anticipated? Um,
2: yes, we have had resistance with the UCI. Um, we can be recognized as the official rider union for women's cycling, and they kind of have refused and, and somewhat ignored us the last few years. So. We've really tried hard to keep all communications open and we want to work with the UCI and the CPA because, you know, we all have different things that we're good at and we can all be complementary of each other in what we can achieve in growing the sport. Um, So, yeah, that's been a bit frustrating, but it hasn't um, held us back from still doing the work. We don't need to be recognised by the UCI as the official rider union because, you know, we're doing the work anyway, so we're just going to, keep doing the work and and helping riders um riders are really on board with us from day 1 um the only i guess barrier is our membership so we have a 50 euro annual membership and i guess a lot of riders probably don't you know want to pay that because it's probably a significant amount of money for riders that don't get paid at all and and maybe other riders don't see the value in it or or what's in it for me because we don't you know particularly provide a now benefit even though we have you know things for members that that are beneficial I think it's hard to you know sell the idea that it's a union so we're unifying the writers voices for future change I think a lot of people really struggle with um you know implications that are in the future rather than you know rewards for right now so we really Try hard to see to get people to see the bigger picture, but certainly that's not for everyone. Um, but we we have a lot of options. We have supporter memberships for for fans and for people that want to support the cyclist alliance, and they can also sponsor rider memberships. So we've had a few people, you know, provide the the funds for a, a rider that would like to be a member, but you know they don't want to or they can't afford to to pay our membership fee. That they can still be a member and have access to all of our services.
3: So if a female did want to become a member of that, well, um, I suppose could, if they race, could they apply to be that or is it for kind of like the World Tour girls only?
2: Uh, it's for any female cyclist that is registered as a UCI rider. So if you have a UCI licence and you're an Australian, you can apply. Um, but if you're a, um, a National Road Series rider without a UCI licence, we can still figure out a way for you to be a member if you'd like. <laughs> And, yeah, ultimately we want to be able to help that developing kind of pillar of riders, especially with our mentor program. We have a, a really great mentor program set up that pairs inexperienced riders with more experienced riders and to mentor them in a um, in a year. And, and everyone has different goals and, and what they want out of the program, but it's been quite successful so far. And we also have um, retired riders that are mentoring some of the more experienced riders or people that want to transition out of the sport soon. Um, But, yeah, in the next year or two, we'd like to have the earlier part, so um, developing riders, junior riders, being able to partake in that mentor program too to to have that help to get into, you know, UCI-level cycling.
3: That's really cool. I think that is a bit of a gap that is missing in the sport, that like support that isn't coming from basically a political arm or a governing body that it is just if you want support, it is here and we can help you. Because there is a, a lot of people that just don't make the cut you know with some of those um governing bodies, whether they're just you know, it's for political reasons or they can only take four or five riders so this is this is that is a real big gap in the sport and it is pretty cool that you guys are filling that and looking to expand it down to that um outside the pro ranks as well
2: yeah it's really exciting and we just want. Um, women's cycling to be accessible by as many people as possible regardless of what country they're coming from and um, in terms of the mentor program a lot of the applicants are coming from outside of central europe and that really shows that they're looking for that extra support and that extra advice of you know how do i get in a european team or how do i get into a better team or um, how do i you know learn to to live away from home and that's something australians can really relate to.
3: And that is harder, I think, for the females because the men definitely, there's a bit more of a stepping stone they can go because there's a lot of amateur teams that basically pay wages that aren't even classed as pro teams where that women's cycling, there is a lot less of that because even at that World Tour, like they don't have minimum wage yet, do they? Or is that coming?
2: Yes. In the World Tour, we have minimum wage now. So nine teams this year had to pay the minimum wage of, I'll get this wrong. I think it's about €25,000, which is quite good. Um, but, yeah, the, there's still 50 other teams that don't have to have a minimum wage. Next year there will be 15 World Tour teams that have to pay the minimum wage and that will be slightly increased again. Um, I think I'm going to misquote this, but, yeah, it's a, it's another few thousand euro. Um, there's been two teams, Trek and Bike Exchange, that have given... Their women world tour riders right, the same minimum wage as what the the men get, which is forty thousand euro, and that's a really great statement about how they want to support um, equality across teams. Um, but that's not mandatory. Um, think- I'd really love to see like a continental level, you know, come in as well mm-hmm. that also have to have a minimum. We certainly can't expect those fifty, all of those fifty teams, to have a minimum wage because that's probably going to drive out. Teams, some teams to extinction, and we don't want that either. So it is a bit of a tricky balancing act of how much money certain teams have at the moment versus how much money they they need to have if they want to meet these minimum requirements.
1: If you're looking at teams like Bike Exchange and Trek matching that um, minimum wage of the men in the women's um, pro tour, if I'm a sponsor looking at that or even a supporter, that's really encouraging. And you said it highlights that um, that they're serious and and they're passionate about you know equality across uh, across both of the sports but if i'm looking at that from an outside that's got to be a a very encouraging or very enticing team to get behind financially or something too i would imagine so it'd be interesting to know if they've had a benefit from you know in, in a cor- in the corporate space or in their supporter base as well from making that move
2: yeah i'm not sure that's a good question but i would like to encourage anyone with the the means to be able to put some some kind of support towards women's cycling, to look at the teams just under those teams because women's cycling is actually a great return on investment. It's a it's a much less um, amount to a men's cycling team investment, um, and you're probably not getting as diluted with all of their sponsors. So to to provide the support to get some of the other teams up to that level as well, that either uh, at a world tour level but you know at that smaller budget or or the the teams that are just trying to make it to the world tour level um i think the exposure that they're getting now is way more than what it used to be we're getting races on tv a lot more um streamed uh so yeah i really want to encourage any bigger sponsors not just to go for the, the treks and the bike exchanges which is also positive but you know, that they, they are getting a lot of great support now. So we want to kind of level it out across women's cycling and be able to help those other teams. And that ultimately helps the whole sport.
3: Mm, great point. Yeah, and even for a fan, it is, yeah, to follow this. It, it'll Everything bit helps. So watching the racing, following them on social media and that kind of thing. Because, yeah, those little teams that are struggling a bit, it's not like they've got $10 million in the bank account laughing because they don't have to spend it. The money just isn't there. And it is more. Yeah, um, that's right. More that you can um, help entice sponsors to. I mean, the average Joe can't afford to sponsor a team, but if you can support a team and get behind them, that helps sponsors then come on board. Like it is more enticing to sponsor a team with a big fan base. And um, yeah, more everyone can do does help grow the sport. And
2: yeah, that's that's right. There's a lot that everyone can do. If you you can't afford to sponsor a rider or a team, just engage one of the the things that women's cycling has been good at is having such a great presence on social media and so many riders are quite generous with how much they post and how much they engage with the fans um so you know follow all of the female riders um watch the races if they're being streamed or broadcast read the articles you know cycling tips is a great example they have some really great women's content but they still need the clicks so click away
3: <laughs> yeah that's what I was gonna say definitely read the articles because that I mean because some of the problem with women's cycling is they do get less media attention but if you yeah, something like cycling tips can see that those women's articles are getting less views it is harder to justify spending more and more money on sending journalists out too so it's one of those things is it like chicken or egg situation but if everybody just you know is a bit more mindful and does, does try and promote the sport. It all feeds off each other and then continues to grow.
2: I must, yeah, that's, that's right.
3: I must admit, like, um, at least, I mean,
0: not that I'm directly involved with um, women's cycling, at especially at the pro level, but, you know, from the outside looking in, it, it feels like women's cycling is one of those sports that has grown massively compared to uh, the women's side of other sports. Um, like I've found, you know, like the the women's AFL in Australia is a classic example where there is a lot of media coverage and stuff now, but I don't know many diehard football fans that are actually sitting down and watching the games um, and that sort of thing. But I have noticed lately, like, you know, if there is a women's race on, it's, you know, on bunch rides in group chats and that sort of thing. Like it is the, you know, the talk of the town, so to speak um, in yeah, that, that sort of reception is there.
1: Absolutely. Even look at, um, we even look at just some of our group chats that we have. And I'd say over the last probably two years, it's, you know, on parity with men's cycling races that are on that people in the group chat are, are talking about the, you know, the female races on. So I, I'd, I'd agree with you there that I think it's been a, from the outside looking, it does look like it's been a, a growing, a rapidly growing, um sport from a spectator base compared to others.
2: Yeah, I agree. I think women's cycling has been at quite a high and professional level now for quite a number of years, but because it's finally, you know, being broadcast a lot more, people realize that. <laughs> the racing, you know, we don't just faff around, we're actually super fast and tactically getting really good and and that makes the racing exciting plus because of the level of professionalism that some of these bigger teams are at, there's not just you know mariana voss winning everything anymore like she still wins races but he has her work cut out for her we've got 20 other riders that are vying for these wins and so it is quite unpredictable as to who's going to win and that's what makes it so watchable
1: just wondering if that's a you know a, a technical and professional term from the pro tour teams that we're super fast is that uh is that the actual technical term for it or is that <laughs> is that just something we bandy around?
2: No, that's just what I say to make myself feel better when I'm suffering out there. Come on watch that us all. We're super fast <laughs> yeah. It feels super fast.
1: Ah, <laughs> oh, it looks super fast. It's I've made this comment before that um and I'm absolutely not being disrespectful in any way towards women's uh, other women's sports, but um, there are a handful of women's sports that I think are equally as exciting for me to watch as men's sport like i, I say openly i watch men swimming and uh, women swimming and they're both equally as exciting and they're both you know I, I struggle to see any difference in between um you know performance wise and i find cycling is very much the same like it i would happily sit down and watch uh, women's cycling because for me it's Equally, if not more exciting than watching men cycling, so it's a, in that regard. I think it's a fantastic um, display of of uh, women in sport. I think some of the best yeah. races I've watched are, are women's
3: races. There is some, yeah, there's some good race in there.
2: Yeah, That's- a lot of people bring up that should women race equal distances to men, and and my answer is usually no, because what the races distances are now like they make for good racing and if they were longer they would be a bit more negative and and probably three quarters of the race would be boring so it's kind of pointless i think that's one of the the good things about women's cycling is the racing has this nice distance where they they really just hammer it for most of the time so it's constantly changing and you don't quite know you know what's going to happen next
3: definitely i think that men's racing even with the lengths is just I think that's just outdated too. Like it might've been good when you were covering it only in the newspaper, but the same reason I don't watch men's tennis, but I watch women's tennis just so because I don't have the attention span to sit through a full <laughs> men's tennis match where I like that. I like that um, they only do the three sets in the women. So I'm like, yeah, this is cool. This is me. I like
1: this. It's, I think, it's very interesting though because we've had the same conversation with some other other, um, female athletes where we've spoken more so about our local NRS um, events where some of those are significantly shorter than the men's NRS. And admittedly, compared to World Tour, um, yeah, there's probably a bigger disparity between the length of the men and the women's racing. But um, I suppose you're probably one of the first female riders that we've spoken to that has said you don't necessarily agree with them being longer. And if anything, I wonder, though, if it more, raises more of a, a conversation about whether or not the women's race should be longer or whether or not, like Trent touched on, are the men's races now maybe outdated and not reflective of what people want to watch? Are they too long? You know, I don't know.
3: I think the women are in a good spot now too, where they're not really tied down by like the men are kind of stuck in a box with tradition and stuff where the women are in a good spot where the sport's growing. It's like you said, it's not overly expensive to invest in it, that they could really fine tune the sport and commercialize it and make it into something a spectacle, I suppose. Like, where the men are, the men are stuck like you look at something like Milan San remo like yeah it's a monument race but that race is boring the watch up until like 10 minutes to go <laughs> where um yeah
2: uh- the the traditional nature of cycling really is the barrier in a lot of ways and and we saw you know the hammer series is a great example that was actually really cool to watch and so different and actually great to capture new viewers to the sport or or at least entertain old viewers because, you know, you, you do get bored of the, the usual stuff. So I think there needs to be a balance there between the traditional monuments and stuff because, you know, it is nice to have history there and to have races that everyone looks forward to. But I think the women could really benefit from their own version of a Hammer Series type thing. And I think that could really bring in new um, sponsors and, and new fans because it's exciting and it's different. Like that's what they're doing with the Big Bash cricket and the
3: three-person
2: yeah, um, basketball and stuff. So yeah, I don't see the difference. And I think that's something that would be really interesting in Australia. In is what they do in America, which is the the twilight kind of criterium racing, and they turn it into a street party in downtown areas of cities and and big towns and. It's such a great way to get the community involved and I've always wanted to see more crits in Australia that are uh, community events because that would be such a cool way to get people to like cyclists in this country.
1: Um, are you suggesting people don't like us? <laughs> <laughs> then and I went for a ride the other day and it was like 9, oh, was it 10 in the morning or something? And we, we got within the first 10 kilometres, I think we'd been abused four times. <laughs> <laughs> It was a rough day, <laughs> <laughs> but now bringing um, cycling to the
3: people, especially in their criterion format, that is the the best way to do it. That, that's actually one thing I wanted to ask. Though back onto the the sort of
0: the distance of women's racing difference, do you think that's um, part of the reason why women's races are race the way it is? Because um, that's one thing I found. Why I think it is so awesome to watch compared to the men's is that. I feel like when you watch men's, especially like a one day classics or something and it's six hours and it's basically like five hours, 40 minutes of everyone watching each other. And then 15 minutes of racing at the end. Um, And all the favorites kind of just look at each other until the end where it's pretty common in the women's races for just like hail Mary attacks, like a hundred K's to go from like proper race favorites. This like, this isn't, I find it's pretty common. It's not just, you know, like someone who's not a big favorite and they're like, oh, well, I'm probably going to get dropped anyway, so I'll just attack. But, yeah, I found that's, that's really common in women's racing and you don't quite get that in men's. Do you think that's it's the distance difference?
2: Yeah, I think definitely the, the distance has a lot to do with it, but it it has changed. It was, even since I started racing versus the later years of my career, um, there was less confidence in how a team could control a race. So, you know, in men's racing, the best teams know exactly when they need to start riding to bring a break back and they know how much time to give. And it seems really formulaic because it is, but that's because they're so good at it. And in women's racing, we're getting to the point now that women's teams are doing that more, and, and that's also good too. And, you know, yesterday's Olympic race was actually... an example of that because if it weren't for the 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 outlier the the woman that won because from all accounts they're saying that no team knew that she was also away the Dutch riders didn't look like they they knew what they were doing but they actually did a perfect ride they did control it they did bring back those other two riders at the right time right at the end they were attacking on the circuit and they had an you know, get silver, which you thought was gold. Um, And you're seeing that in pro races as well, where everyone has a full team of six, there's a lot more control now, even in our distance of races. So yes, it is a little bit more exciting in the sense that more is happening in the race, but it is slowly changing more towards men's cycling as well. But I think if we increase the distances, that would go out the window again, <laughs> and I think it would just be a lot more negative. And I, yeah, I just don't believe that it's helpful to women cycling.
3: But even looking at those two road races, like with the men's race, the ones that were in the break, you kind of looked at them and you're like, yeah, right, they let it go 20 minutes, and these guys are going to get dropped on the climb. But the women's race, that was like, as Ben said, they was still like there was a chick from canyon tram Anna, who won, rode for Lotto, like Lotto in the like Lotto Soudal in the past, like. There were some good – I was looking at that break going, this could still do all right. Like, there are still a bit of talent in here. It's not like the men where they – yeah, they did let basically the lower ones go. Like, there are some girls that can win this race in this break for sure.
2: Yeah, I think I think that break had to go because it meant all other countries could make the Dutch work eventually, um, which was a good tactic for everyone else. It There were strong riders, but there was only three. So – I think if they had better comms to the, the race teams, the, the cars, sorry, I think, you know, she was only one minute and 15 seconds ahead right at the finish. So I think if they knew about her, they, it would have changed things. But she still had an amazing performance, and I really want to make sure I don't take away from that because she deserved that gold medal. She, she was the first rider to attack. She has actually been a strong rider. I think she was underestimated, but she's had some good performances in the past, even though she's not a well-known name. And yes, the other two riders in that break were also really good riders too. So, yeah, a bit of a, an oopsie for everyone, but that's the nature of of cycling.
1: Yeah, heartbreaking for silver, but fantastic to watch, really, isn't it? Like, because it's yeah, unpredictable, and uh, it's I liked it.
2: Yeah. And in some ways it's, it's not like the the Steve Bradbury story, but you know, it was an unlikely winner, but she still had to be good enough to be there in the first place. You know, you still have to be strong. Definitely, You have to qualify for the Olympics. You have to be fit enough to compete with those riders. She had the guts to attack early on. She probably didn't think that was, yeah. She probably never realized what was really going to happen, but you know, you don't attack for nothing. You you do it because you know that's probably your only opportunity. Yeah. So be, it wasn't you know by chance that she won.
3: Definitely not. know that is when you get in the break. There was that common saying like out of sight, out of mind, and especially when you don't have race radio. So she she rolled the dice, um, done a long range attack, and it paid off. Like, yeah, you got to be you got to be strong to do an attack like that. Like you just you can't accidentally ride off the front of a bunch. I mean, no. Anybody, and- anybody's race knows how hard that is to get off the front of a bunch. You just don't You don't go, oh, I accidentally went 10 minutes down the road.
2: Yeah. And, and, you know, a lot of people want to be in the early breakaway too. So, like, I think it's actually amazing that the first break of the day was the break of the day. Because often it's the third or the fourth and they, yeah. they're trying to snap it for a while. So, good on her. And um, I do feel sorry for everyone else that didn't get the right time gaps and the right comms but at the end of the day if you don't race with the radio you have to be on you have to know who's come back or who's still out there so definitely that's
3: (laughs) that's racing a lot of the amateur racing around here like yeah we're not allowed radios so you that is all part of it and you do become better at it more experienced um yeah this is just part of racing you do get like i've definitely had dodgy time checks in breakaways, because they are screaming out the window and they're trying to yell at you at the window in the wind as you're going hard. And yeah, I've been in races where I'd, you know, we're like, all right, we we think we've got it. The town last said two minutes behind, and you go, you glance back, like, nope, nope, there's two riders. <laughs> yeah, that was a bit of a dodgy chime check, but that's just part of it. It's, you can't really. And I've done the other way around too when someone, a big team's gone, so Hanny's down the road, I've gone. Oh, there's five. I'm like, oh, there's a break of three and then there's five behind it. So when they catch the five, they're just still sitting on the front riding like madman. And you are like, yeah, sucker. (laughs) 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 But you are right with that longer race. Like you don't want something like Milan San Remo because somebody even had an app this year. It's called, is Milan San Remo exciting or not yet? And it sends you a a notification when a race gets exciting. And you could go on the app and it's just like, No. (laughs) no 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 and then it just eventually just changes to yes it's like all right turn the tv on but talking about the disparity between teams did you notice much like riding with say, a team like um bike exchange which you said is already pretty good but they do have a men's and a women's team is that set up differently at all between the two of them did you notice any differences
2: In the early part of my time with them, it was different because the women's team was co-funded by the AIS, so our whole model was a little bit different. We weren't completely a privately funded team, but um, by uh, 20, I can't even remember now, must have been 2017, it changed, so we were a completely privately funded team. And um, things are always going to be different between men's and women's teams, but I I do think that they did try to make it, you know, as close as possible. Certainly not in money, but we we got the same equipment. We had great staff. Um, Jerry Ryan was such a big supporter of the women's team. He would come and watch our races and come and have dinner with us sometimes. So it, we didn't feel like an afterthought. It was just kind of the way it was, I guess, with how um, the women's team was funded. But we certainly weren't lacking in any resources.
3: It is probably a bad team to draw a comparison to, and it is good, and it does help that Jerry's just such a fan of the sport and the riders, and that he does come and sit down with you guys. It just helps motivate him to get behind it even more, and just yeah, he's doing a good thing. And yeah, I I wasn't aware that they were matching the men's minimum wage, and that that is really really cool.
2: Yeah, I think it's a big deal, and it's a big show of faith there, and. Jerry could have stepped away from being the, the main sponsor of the team many times already. A lot of sponsors don't stick around more than four or five years, and he's been doing this. This is the 10th year now, I'm, I'm pretty sure, for the, the Green Edge group, um, and he just loves it. And yeah, that's cycling is quite dependent on those kind of benefactors.
0: Uh, australian cycling would be screwed without jerry Ryan. <laughs> yeah yeah it's not just the
2: green edge riders that have benefited from jerry he's been a big supporter of cycling in general all the way back from kathy watt so a lot of us have a lot to thank him for
3: yeah he's helped co-fund under 23 teams and smaller projects as well not just the big ones that even like well i think harry sweeney even came through one of them who didn't actually end up on the green edge team but we saw him riding with lotto at the tour de france so he's helped other riders get to where they are
2: yeah and he came through the under 23 development port pathway i'm pretty sure so he has benefited from the the australian cycling model which is a big part because of jerry so it's really cool to see riders like that you know going on their own pathways but you know, coming from the grassroots level from Australian cycling.
1: Gracie, something uh, you said earlier has been sort of sitting in the back of my mind. Um, you, you made a mention of when you were racing and in your time in Europe in particular and that that you might have been perceived or labelled as a perfectionist um, in, in how you approached sport in particular, I, I presume, and drew the comparison briefly to you don't think that men maybe get that same label or maybe have that same pressure put on them about, you know, with that with that terminology about perfectionist or being perfectionist in regards to that. It's something that probably interests me a little bit and we've actually got another podcast, um, another episode planned in the future of talking about how men in particular and can have a bit of a uh, culture of glorifying suffering, for want of a better term, in in, in different sort of aspects. And when you say that, I, I I sort of move towards thinking. I agree that women maybe tend to get labelled that perfectionist, and maybe men tend to be more tarred with a brush of, or look through the lens of, oh, look how dedicated that bloke is, or the sacrifices they're pref- prepared to make and maybe ties in with that that glorification of one aspect of an athlete and maybe not so much with the other. Do you, Does that make sense, anything that I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, no, I do. I'm just trying to think of how to answer that. But yes, I, I believe there's a lot of differences between how females and males are perceived in our culture and our society, but in sport, definitely so. And it's complicated in the sense that um as a female being athletic is i guess more of a masculine thing to do so sometimes we overcompensate by being as feminine as, as we can and still being an athlete to show you know i'm still a girl or i'm still a woman i can do this i'm not a tomboy or it's it's things that we don't think about consciously but i think we overcompensate a lot for and and because women are supposed to be women and stay at home and be mums and um, not do masculine things I think if if we try hard at anything it doesn't have to be sport if if we show up and we care a lot it's it's so negative and it's such a shame because women can add value to to any workplace or any sport um, and we can do great things in sport and still be women so it's just a, if, if, that's why it frustrates me because yeah maybe we are perfectionists sometimes, but I think to get labelled that unfairly all the time is really annoying, and men don't seem to get that as much. Like you said, they're they're more hardworking or determined. And that's quite toxic as well because they have some pretty some male athletes, definitely in cycling, have some pretty bad issues. There's some really toxic uh, eating disorders. Um, and cultures in teams that glorification of lameness um, and looking ripped and being having veins all over you and 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 riding with injuries too like i think that's a whole you know another conversation of glorifying that side of things because you know you see those memes of the soccer players rolling around all hurt and then (laughs) you see the photo of a cyclist just shredded bloody like that's a kind of a cool comparison, but I think sometimes we take it a bit too far and um, riding with some some pretty bad injuries like that, yeah, shouldn't be celebrated because you're endangering yourself and you're endangering the people around you and you're showing a a poor example for young people as well. So, yeah, it's a tricky one there.
3: Yeah, definitely. Like you shouldn't be celebrating people finishing tours with cracked vertebrae and things like that. Like, Yeah. That's not something that you want the juniors to be watching, going, hey, this is healthy.
1: No, and, and that's a very important part of, I think, what the problem is. You know, Because I don't think the problem is that people are doing that. The, the problem is that they feel like they have to do that, and it's probably just because of this vicious cycle of the perception of everybody looking in, and then obviously when you're under that microscope and you think that you have to then perform you know, that you have to plunge yourself into that world and that that's what the, the standard is and that's what the expectation is. I, I think that, you know, I see that to be more of the problem. And unfortunately, I think the legacy that we leave behind then is that juniors see that coming through. You know, my children watch that on television and ask a question, well, why are they riding like that? And then we're indoctrinating those juniors with those same, um, I suppose, ideologies and perceptions and things like that. And I don't think that's healthy in, in some regards. And we can't ever, we don't ever want to take away from the aspect of sport that to be the best, you have to, you know, you have to generally put yourself into an area that other people aren't prepared to go. You have to drop, push harder than, train harder, all those sorts of things. You're not just going to wake up one day and be the best in the world. But I don't think we've got that balance right of glorifying the suffering aspect of it, whether or not that's the physical suffering or the emotional suffering or what you've sacrificed in your family time and all these other sacrifices you make off the bike um, and and the competitive nature of sport. I think there's an imbalance there.
2: Yeah, I think something that I learned quite early on is, yeah, I think I touched on it earlier, is just switching on and off. And sometimes, yes, you have to suffer. Yes, you have to be a bit extreme, but not all the time. And it's the people that, can't switch that off that I think that they're only going to be good if they're suffering and they're only going to be good if they're always switched on and they're always dieting and they're always training hard and you know, they're always doing everything like that'll catch up with you and that'll bite you in the ass and it's not sustainable. So if you're not having fun for the majority of your time in sport, that something needs to change. Sometimes it's not fun, but most of the time it should be fun.
0: Yeah. That's something that I think mean, i try to um you know communicate with a lot of the writers that I coach is you know it's it's sort of the same approach you take to like you take the same approach to training as you do with say like a diet in the sense that you know fad diets don't work. You know, if it's if it's a diet that you can't do, you know, effectively for the rest of your life and it's not sustainable in that way, then it's it's not really gonna work for you. You know, doing this epic diet for six weeks and then going back to what you were doing isn't good for your health in the long term. And, yeah, that, that sort of approach applies to your training and, you know, basically your whole life in general, really, that, yeah, if you, if you can't maintain this level of effort, you know, well, for like five years or so, then it's, you're probably overdoing it or at least taking the wrong approach to it.
2: Yeah, and something that I really had to stop and think about was how much do I want short-term rewards versus long-term consequences and you're only an athlete for such a short time in your life and hopefully you get to live a long life and if you're putting yourself at risk of osteoporosis or or mental health issues that stuff stays with you for the rest of your life and that's decades that's a long time and um, as a young athlete I I knew one day I wanted to have kids one day I wanted to have another job one day I wanted to do all these other things and I think that was a really nice compass point for me to make good decisions in the moment and, you know, I think maybe something that a young athlete or, or a current athlete could do is, you know, write down all the things that you're looking forward to after sport and and know that's not going to take away from what you're trying to achieve right now but it might be a nice reference point for you to keep touching back on to your like me, you don't know what you're going to do yet. But maybe you want to go skiing, or maybe you want to try another sport, or maybe you want to have kids. So, like, there's all these things that are also important to you. Um, and I think it's really important to keep remembering that and and know that being skinny or being, you know, overtrained to win race a race this year is not going to help you in the long run.
1: You'd be like Primoz Roglic, and yeah, you know, after I have a bit of a career as a skier i might go try the bike thing and see how that pans out right i wonder if you'd that down prior to being a skier yeah
2: well that's right like we all have lots of different lives and that's great that's a really cool thing and that's something that's helping me in this transition is my best years aren't over like i still get to do way more cool stuff because i'm really healthy and strong still and yeah i'm really grateful to have had good advice along the way and to have had that foresight when I was younger. Hmm.
1: Yeah. With um, regards to the cycling Alliance, where can people, um, you spoke before about just jumping on and supporting um, from all levels, obviously outside of the the union aspect of it, where can people find that, follow you and I I suppose give that support at all levels?
2: Uh, Yeah. If you, Go on our website, cyclistsalliance.org. You'll find lots of information, even if you're not a member. We, we try and make things pretty transparent and, and open access. There are and There is a members-only version of that website as well. If you log in, once you've become a member, you can be a supporter member so you don't have to be a rider or you can choose any amount that you'd like to donate or if you'd like to sponsor a rider. We also have social channels, so we have Twitter and Instagram um, you can even find a link to the Cyclists Alliance Instagram off my bio <laughs> on my Instagram. So um, follow um, Cyclists Alliance and follow all the female riders. Click links on websites for women cycling, and yeah, just keep going keep down following. the rabbit hole. <laughs> yep. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and where it stops, nobody knows because uh, there's there's a heap out there that we just um, you write, right. You start. Have we lost? No. Oh, you no, start. You. No, that's right. You start uh, clicking on links and that, like you said, reading articles and and uh, there's so much out there that because you're not necessarily focused on it, you're reading other things. You, there's this whole body of content that you know you can explore and, and open up a whole new world. So, yeah.
3: Thanks for coming on. It was a good chat, and it's good. To ha- uh, we're grateful that you made time to come and talk to us.
2: Yeah, thanks, guys. It was. Good to chat about all the big issues. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, we've really uh, enjoyed seeing you on SBS too during the tour, and that it was uh, yeah, did a great job. It was uh, refreshing having you on there.
2: Thanks. Hopefully, I can do more in the future, and hopefully, there's more women's racing that I can commentate on instead of just the men's, which I'm also a big fan of, to be honest.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, it'll be interesting to see what because next year with the um, uh, how many days is it going to be? Sorry for the for the uh, females' tour.
2: Is uh, it? I think nine or ten days.
1: Yeah. So I mean maybe you never know maybe you'd be a uh, a cornerstone on there for the yeah, commentary.
2: Yeah,
1: <laughs> Awesome. Cool. Yeah. Thanks very much. I've really appreciated it. I, I i love hearing um about the aspects outside of just the racing too, you know, like I I love hearing about people transitioning out and how they manage those things and that so you've definitely provided um another insight and another perspective today and I really hope that uh, other people listening to this might take something away and apply it to their own life, whether or not it's on the bike or just in life generally.
2: Yeah. Well, I've always said to any Aussie female cyclist that they can always contact me if they have a question or want some advice. So contact me on my socials or any other way that you know. (laughs) Um, I think it's important to, to give the next generation as much help as they can. But thanks for the good questions today too. I really enjoyed the chat.
3: Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for coming on.